I'll invite you to turn again in your Bibles to John chapter 16. If you were with us last Sunday, we started a, um, a new series on the Holy Spirit. And uh, we want to use as a text scripture, beginning place, John chapter 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And he made some statements to them. He said, I will not leave you comfortless. I'll send the comforter to you. Now, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And, um, uh, and he's indicating to them, the Bible says over and over again, as a matter of fact, the Bible says more about God never leaving you nor forsaking you in some form or another than anything else. It's in there the more, the, the greatest number of times about God never leaving you. It's almost like he's trying to make a point, huh? Well, how is he never going to leave you or forsake you? It's by his spirit. It's by his spirit. And so Jesus is saying the comforter who is the Holy Ghost when he's come, he'll do a number of things. He'll testify of me. He'll rem- uh, bring all things to your remembrance and so forth. But he's saying that the Holy Ghost will be the one that comforts us. In other words, the Holy Ghost is the only presence of God that there is in us, with us, and operating through us here in the earth today. Jesus in a flesh and bone body, not flesh and blood, but flesh and bone body is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So God's in heaven. Jesus is at his right hand. And the Holy Ghost dwells in you in the church here on the earth. So in John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said, how be it when he, the spirit of truth. I love the fact that he calls the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the spirit of truth. Now, I'll remind you in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying, he said that the word of God is truth. He's praying for the disciples, for the church, not just the 12, but for us as well. And he said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So if the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, then he's got to be the spirit of the word. If the word is truth and he's the spirit of truth, then he's got to be the spirit of the word. In other words, the Holy Spirit and the word always agree. That's the first and foremost way you can judge whether or not something is of God. Well, the, Pastor Mike, the Holy Spirit said this to me. Not if it contradicts the word, he didn't. He's the spirit of the word. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he also speak, and he will show you things to come. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. So God is telling us that the Holy Ghost is going to guide us. He's going to guide us. He's going to lead us. What's he going to lead us into? Well, all truth. Another translation says all reality. I like that because truth is reality. He's going to guide you into the real, the things that are real. How many things have been put off on the Holy Ghost? How many things have been attributed to him that didn't turn out to be right? That turned out to be false, that turned out to be goofiness or whatever the case is. That's not the spirit of reality that led him into that. He shall glorify me, verse 14. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and shall show it unto you. So we can expect the Holy Ghost to show us some things. Now, look back with me to John chapter 14. Jesus is speaking the same context, the same setting. Speaking to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. Notice he said in verse... uh, Well, let's just start in verse 16. He said, and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. In other words... Another comforter means one of the same type as I am. Now, how was Jesus their comforter? He's talking to the 11. We would say 12 kind of categorically, but the 11, since Judas has already left the room to betray him. 
So he's talking to his disciples, those that are closest to him. And he said, the same way that I've been your comfort for the last three years, the Holy Ghost will be to you. What have they looked to Jesus to do for them? Maybe a better question is, what haven't they looked to Jesus to do for them? He's been the source of their supply. He's provided for them physically. He's fed them. Whatever needs they've had, he's taken care of them. He's seen to every detail of their lives while they were with him. Is that what you look to the Holy Ghost to do for you? It's a real question. I think a lot of times we just accept the fact, we meaning the church world at large, just accept the fact, well, the Holy Ghost lives within us. We've got the Spirit of God because we're saved and, you know, he's there. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And some way or another, he'll ride along with us until we get to heaven. Folks, he's not in you to ride along. He's dwelling within you to comfort you. In other words, to be your all in all. I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter. Then he may abide with you forever. I'm glad he said how long he's going to be with us. He'll abide with us forever. Now, he's not changing subjects. Going to the next verse. Jesus didn't speak in chapter and verse any more than you do. He's talking about the same thing where he says, verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, the world meaning the unsaved, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. In other words, Jesus is saying, number one, the Holy Ghost cannot come upon the world apart from Jesus. The way for the Holy Ghost to make a change or to bring salvation to the earth is through one and only one way, and that's through Jesus. He can't come to the the world any other way. In other words, if some group, some religion, some doctrine says, well, there's another way to God, we've got the same Holy Ghost that the church claims to have. That cannot be true because the world cannot receive him. There's only one way to receive him, and that's through Jesus. See, folks, Jesus is not about a creed or a doctrine or a set of rules. Jesus is about changing people's lives, changing them from the spirit, from the real man, changing them from the inside out. The reason Christians act different, the reason that Christians are supposed to act differently than the world does is because the change has occurred in their heart from within. Otherwise, you try to just keep a set of rules without recognizing the the greater one, the spirit of God on the inside of you, you're going to be hopelessly frustrated. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he shall be in you. I'm sorry, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Notice Jesus mentions the Holy Ghost in two contexts, with and in. With you and in you. The Holy Ghost with you and the Holy Ghost in you. Now, did Jesus say the Holy Ghost will either be with you or he will be in you? Is that what he said? No, he said, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him. For he shall be with you and he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. In other words, he's talking about two different things, with and in. Now, if he's in you, how can he not be with you? We could certainly understand how he could be with us and not be in us. I mean, if I went to the store with you, that doesn't mean I'm in you. 
We could understand that part. But how can he be in you and not with you? Interesting choice of words, don't you think? Now, what is he talking about? Turn back with me to John chapter 4 and John chapter 7. We looked at this before, and we won't spend a lot of time on it this morning because we want to go a little bit further than we did last week. But I do think it bears repetition to, to at least bears mention of what we said. In John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well of Samaria. They're talking, he asked her for water from the well. She's uh, confused because Jews don't have any dealings with the Samaritans, and so they have a conversation about that. And Jesus said, in verse 13, John chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, talking about the water in the well, Jacob's well, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him, notice that phrase twice, the water that I shall give him, shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, all throughout the Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, and the New Testament holds the, the pattern as well, all throughout the Old Testament, water was used as a type of things, the blessing of God coming down from heaven. It's used as a type of the Holy Spirit. God said through the prophet Joel, he said, I will come to you. Well, he said through Amos and Hosea and Joel, actually. But he said, I will come to you as the rain, as the early rain and the latter rain. God saying, I, my presence, will be like the rain. Well, rain's water, isn't it? He's talking about the water of the Holy Ghost. He's talking about the water, which is the type of the presence of God. Jesus is saying, the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So we can see that in you, the in you phrase that Jesus is talking about, He wouldn't be talking about water in you in one context or to mean one thing in John chapter 4 and talk about water in you or the Holy Spirit in you in John chapter 14 to mean different things, would he? Would he? I think there's some consistency with Jesus, don't you? So the water in you is everlasting life. He's talking about salvation. So he's talking about a work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And it's like a well. Well, who does the well benefit? The owner of the well. So he's talking about the well in you, the Holy Spirit in you. Now look at John chapter 7. He talks about the Holy Ghost, uses the same illustration of the Spirit of God being like water, but he uses it in a different setting or in a different manner. John chapter 7, verse 37, in that last day, the great day of the feast, what that means is, the, um, the feast days were, uh, they made a feast a week long, but one day, the last day of that week long feast was the real day of the, uh, for the purpose or the, the whole point of the feast week. So he said, in that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me. He that believeth on me. Now notice in John chapter four, he's talking to the woman. He said, the water that I give him, he's talking about a gift. Well, what is the gift of God through Jesus? Salvation. But he said, he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So now he's talking about the Holy Ghost being like a river. John chapter 4, he talks about the Holy Ghost like a well, which benefits the owner of the well. Now he's talking about the Holy Ghost being like a river. For who? For anybody he gives it to? No. It says for those that believe on me. So it seems to indicate in John chapter 7 that there's a prior work. Before this river of living water takes place. What is that prior work? 
the prior work is believing on him. What is believing on Jesus? Salvation. Verse 39, but this spake he of the spirit, which they that believe on him. Well, that would have to be believers then, wouldn't it? A believer is somebody that's saved. They which believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Now we see this in operation. We see in John chapter 20 after Jesus is raised from the dead. He's crucified and the resurrection takes place. And immediately thereafter he goes and presents himself to the Father in heaven. And comes back and finds the disciples huddled up, hidden behind closed doors. The Bible says they were behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. They're afraid that they're, the Jews, the religious leaders, are going to do the same thing to them that they did to Jesus. They're afraid for their life, in other words. They're in despair. They think that, that all hope is gone. These last three years were wasted. We thought we had the Messiah on our hands, but now he's dead, he's gone, and we're alone. In spite of all the things that Jesus said, they felt despair, they felt fear, and they were hiding from men. And Jesus appears in the midst, and he shows them his hands in his side. And he says, peace be unto you. Now, when they saw his side, they were glad. When they saw, his, uh, saw the Lord, the Bible says they were glad. And then Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. And what did they receive? He goes on to say, or it goes on to say, Jesus went on to say, as it's recounted in John chapter 20, he said, whosoever sins you remit are remitted. Whosoever sins you retain are retained. So he's talking to them about receiving the Holy Ghost in connection with the remission of sins. Now, some people get hung up on, uh, and I've even heard some people say that the, the apostles had great power that we don't have. The power they had was to remit sins. Well, folks, it's not any man that has the power to remit sins, but every man has the power to tell people to preach the gospel that by receiving Jesus and his sacrifice, your sins are remitted. We also have a responsibility to say if someone rejects Jesus and his sacrifice, their sins are retained. In other words, they'll answer for their own. That's all that means. But the connection that he makes, receive you the Holy Ghost. He breathes on and says, receive the Holy Ghost. He makes that connection with the remission of sins. What is the remission of sins? Salvation. In other words, that's when something happened to cause that well of water to spring up into everlasting life in them. Now, we know something changed because the Bible says that from that point forward, they're not afraid anymore. They're not hiding behind closed doors. They're openly in the temple praising and worshiping God. They're out there in front. They're not afraid of the Jews. They're not afraid of being taken captive. They're not afraid of being beaten or crucified or anything like Jesus was. They're openly in the temple. The Bible says fear was conquered in them. And that's why they went out in public. The Bible also said that it was a change in their lives in that they were filled with joy. Now they're out, no longer in despair, no longer thinking that they're alone, no longer thinking that the last three years were a waste. Now they've had a change of life from within. They're not coming away saying, okay, now we've got a new set of rules. They're just acting differently because they are different. Now the same group, and you might want to turn with me over to Acts chapter 1. This same group, Jesus tells to wait in Jerusalem until another event takes place. He tells these men that are saved, these men that have already been given the great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He says, wait in Jerusalem. You know what to do, but you're not ready to do it yet. 
Now, could they anywhere in, in between these two points in time, in between their salvation and in between Acts, in between sal- their salvation in John chapter 20 and Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Ghost was poured out, could they have told people about Jesus? Yeah, and I don't doubt that they did. If people that knew them before and after saw them, they would probably say, what happened to you? Well, what do you think they said? I- I'm sorry, it's a secret. I can't let you know yet. Of course not. They're telling whoever they can. Yet Jesus said there was something else to come. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. They've already got the Holy Ghost in them. The well of water springing up into everlasting life. The well benefits the owner of the well. But as Jesus said in John chapter 7. Who do the rivers benefit? Rivers benefit everybody. Nobody owns a river. Rivers flow out. And connect people. Now this is what he's talking about in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Power for what? And you shall be witnesses unto me. Both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, Jesus is telling people that are born again. If you're going to go into all the world and preach the gospel. If you're going to do the works that I did. You've got to wait for the power that comes From the Holy Ghost coming upon you, not just within you. But let me ask you this. Which one of these is Jesus expecting the average person to receive? See, we look at it a lot of times, at least the church world does. We look at this and we say, well, this is talking to the disciples. And the disciples became the apostles and they had a great work. And so God wanted the apostles to have some special power. Well, folks, the Bible says they're apostles today. Furthermore, Jesus said the Holy Ghost would abide with you forever, not till the apostles died. And he said he would abide with you forever and be in you and be with you, both. In other words, the well of water springing up into everlasting life would be eternal for everybody. Not just eternal for you that receive, but eternal meaning everybody can receive the same thing no matter what point in time they live here on the earth. He said the same thing about this river of living water, the power of the Holy Ghost that would come upon them from on high. But you shall be endued with power from on high. That's the river. That dwells with us forever too. Now some people will say, oh, no, 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 Pastor Mike. See, they began to speak in other tongues in Acts chapter 2, and that's all been done away with. And they'll go to a scripture over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and they'll say, see, the Bible says that these things will pass away. That's right. It says they will pass away. It does not say that they have passed away. It says that they will pass away. And when it says they will pass away, it says knowledge will pass away and prophecy will pass away and tongues will pass away all at the same time. Has knowledge ceased? I'm pretty famous for saying it has for some, it seems. But it's talking about a point in time. When will knowledge cease? Now, what knowledge is it talking about? It's talking talking about earthly knowledge. When will knowledge cease? When will prophecy, prophecy meaning inspired utterance in the Holy Ghost here on the earth, when will that cease? When the earth ceases for the church. In other words, when Jesus comes back to receive us unto himself, what's commonly called the rapture, those things will cease. See, in heaven, you'll have no need to speak in other tongues. In heaven, there'll be no need for God to inspire anybody to say anything because everything you say there will be inspired. There'll be no need for knowledge the knowledge that we have now, the knowledge that Paul said was, uh, was unclear. He said this, when we're here, it's like looking through a clouded glass. A glass darkly is the way King James says. 
There'll be no need for that knowledge in heaven because it'll be superseded by truth. You'll see clearly. There'll be nothing to cloud your understanding there. So the knowledge of the earth will pass away. Meaning earthly knowledge. Not knowledge of the earth, but earthly knowledge will pass away. Because it'll be superseded by knowledge that's not clouded or limited by the flesh. That's why in heaven you won't need to speak in other tongues. The Bible says we'll speak and see and and understand face to face. So it doesn't say it has passed away. It says these things will pass away. But let me ask you another question. When Jesus said that the Holy Ghost would abide with you forever, he will dwell with you and shall be in you, and he'll abide with you forever. Does forever include heaven? See, folks, you don't have any less or any more of the Holy Ghost here than you're going to have in heaven. He'll abide with you forever. When Jesus comes back for the church and we receive our glorified bodies and then we spend eternity with him in the presence of God, it's not like the Holy Ghost leaves us. He'll dwell with you forever. That means eternity. I would suggest you get used to him here. So which of these did Jesus intend for us to have? The well of water being salvation or the rivers of water being the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Which one? And when Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Can I ask you a question? I want you to think about this real carefully. How can you have the Holy Spirit in salvation and not have power? What power is he saying? Is he saying that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is the only power there is of God? Is he saying that there is no power in, in, the, in salvation? There is no power in the well of water in you springing up into everlasting life? Well, that doesn't fit the pattern we have in the scripture. Because the, the disciples certainly received power to change their lives. They were changed men. Weren't they? They had power to overcome fear. They had power to receive joy. That beats most of the church world that I know of. If the Holy Ghost is the power of God, how can you have the Holy Ghost and not have power? See, I think we do a disservice. And and we have to do it. I don't know that there's any other way to do it. You've got to distinguish between salvation, the Holy Spirit and salvation, and the Holy Spirit and the baptism. Or being filled with the Holy Spirit. You've got to make that distinction. And the reason you have to make that distinction. Is because so much of the church world. Refutes or denies the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And the power thereof. Now if you think about it. It's a perfect ploy of the devil. Because if there is no power any longer. To be witnesses unto Jesus. Then the only thing we've got is our eloquence. To convince the world. And Jesus didn't even rely on that. People came to Jesus. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3 and said, we know you've come from God because nobody can do the miracles that you do except God be with them. So if Jesus, the Son of God, needed miracles to convince the world that God was with him, what do you think you and I need? Our great intellect? Our ability to persuade? Post Jesus was wiser than any church person today. Jesus was wiser here on the earth than anybody ever lived. Jesus even said so himself. He said, you guys look at the wisdom of Solomon as being the greatest that there ever was, but there's one greater than Solomon here among you. It's going to take more than just preaching 
or persuasion. It's going to take more than the eloquence of words. Paul said so. Paul said, I didn't come with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul recognized that it took power. Now, Paul was not one of the original 12. How did Paul have that power if it only belonged to them? The fact is it doesn't only belong to them. It belongs to everybody. So here's the, here's the difficulty that we have. We have to distinguish between salvation, the Holy Spirit and salvation. Some people come up to me, have come up to me and said, Pastor Mike, I've heard you talk about the baptism of the Holy Ghost or being filled with the Spirit. Those are interchangeable terms. I've heard you talk about that, and you make it seem like I don't have the Holy Ghost. But I got saved many, many years ago. And I'll have to clarify that. I'll say, no, you do have the Holy Spirit. Everybody has the Holy Spirit, receives the Holy Spirit when they're born again, when they make Jesus the Lord of their lives. But that's just the experience of the Holy Spirit like the wealth. There's a river available to you. And the church has made such a distinction in actually in denying the power of the Holy Ghost that we have to put due emphasis on the two separate experiences, salvation and the infilling. Have to, just have to. Otherwise, many people would be left with church doctrine rather than the, than the reality of the power that's available to them. Yet, the writers of the New Testament did not write as inspired by the Holy Ghost, which means God did not intend for people to pick and choose which part of the Holy Spirit they wanted. When John wrote to the church and said, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, what's he talking about? Is he talking about the Holy Spirit in, in salvation or the Holy Spirit baptism? Both. When Paul wrote to the church and said, we're more than conquerors, is he talking about because we're saved? Or is he talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit working through us? He's talking about both. Turn with me over to to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I believe, should be everybody's favorite chapter. And the reason for that is because Romans chapter 8 tells you what the overcoming life looks like. Paul goes through the the explanation in chapter 7 about the, the struggle between his spirit and his flesh. The real man on the inside, even though he was born again. The real man on the inside struggling against the work or the desires of the flesh. But in chapter 8, he tells you the, the, the secret, the key to victory. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation which are in Christ Jesus. I'm reading from the King James, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That last phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, is not in uh, some of the oldest manuscripts. You look at a, a comparison Of different translations, New Testament translations, you'll find that about half of them, maybe a little bit more than half, include this phrase, but the rest do not. We'll hold on there for just a minute. I don't believe it's supposed to be there. That phrase is in verse 4. But there's some pretty significant evidence that shows the translators pulled it up from verse 4 and included it in verse 1. Now, whether that was because they could not accept the phrase... Uh, The reality that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period, or not, I don't know. That's my best guess, but who knows. Nevertheless, this phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, is in dispute. Now, let's leave it there for the time being and see if the Bible clarifies so we can understand. 
For, here's why there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, whether walking after the flesh or whatever you want to believe about it. For, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now let me ask you a question. Has the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made you free from the law of sin and death only if you're not walking after the flesh? In other words, are you saved only if you live right? Or are you saved because of Jesus? Then that phrase cannot be supported by the, even, even the next verse. Verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he's saying very simply, it's not a matter of works. The law couldn't do it. Keeping the law couldn't do it. Only the blood of Jesus could. Well, what is keeping the law? Keeping the law is the equivalent of not walking after the flesh, but after the spirit. So it's a further explanation why there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. What is Paul talking about? Remember, he's talking about his own victory. He's talking about, here's the victory that I gained over my flesh. I came to realize that I'm righteous. Not righteous if I do right. Righteous because of Jesus. Now, I want to do right. That's the reason why he was struggling. I want to do right, as, as I believe most every Christian does. But not every Christian knows the power, has found the power, the source of the power to live right. Does that mean they're not saved until they learn to live right? If that's the case, then their salvation depends on them and not on Jesus. In other words, the blood of Jesus isn't enough for them. It takes their own right living to do it. We know that's not true. Verse 4. That or so that Jesus condemns sin in the flesh so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Yeah, but here's that phrase again. Even if you leave it in verse 4 and take it out of verse 1, it's talking about the righteousness of the law is fulfilled when you learn to live right. Is that what he means? If so, then righteousness is not based on Jesus' blood. Folks, if there's one thing that you need to learn and be solid in and be established in, look yourself in the mirror every morning and say, I'm righteous no matter what. Because of Jesus, I'm righteous no matter what. Because that is going to be the number one thing that the devil is going to try to beat you around the head with. You messed up. You made a mistake. And so God's mad at you. God can't be mad at you because you're in Christ Jesus. You may be learning to walk. But he's not mad at you. Any of you had a newborn children? As they begin to, toddlers begin to to crawl and then they start taking their first steps. How many of our kids fall on the way of learning? You know what we do. We get so upset with them when they fall. Right? No, they start walking. They're learning to walk. They, they're grabbing hold of something and then they let go and they wobble around a little bit and take a step and then fall flat on their face. We rush over to them and say, honey, you did it. You're walking. Well, they took one step. But we call it walking. Right? And we're excited for what they did. We don't get on to them because they fell. I wonder if it's that way with God. He's on your side because you're in Christ. Because you made Jesus the Lord of your life. You're going to stumble and fall along the way. But you know what? My kids don't stumble and fall when they walk like they used to. Every now and then. But not like they did when they were first learning. You get better at it as you go. 
That's what Paul's trying to get across. Righteousness is yours. Verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit the mind, uh, do mind or are after the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Folks, if we don't define this phrase, in the flesh, we're going to be hopelessly confused. Because some people are going to say, in the flesh means messing up, Christians messing up. Other people are going to say other things. What does in the flesh mean? Paul identifies it by the Holy Ghost. Paul's going to define it for you right now. Verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. What does he mean? He's talking about the Spirit of God. There's two ways the Spirit of God can be in you. Either salvation or the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Which one's he talking about? He explains further. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. There's only, way you, only one way you can have the Spirit of Christ, and that is by being born again. Therefore, in the flesh means unsaved. Let's back up and read some some previous verses. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the unsaved, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... Christ sending, God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin condemns sin in the flesh. The sin of the unsaved. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not as the unsaved. But after the spirit. For those that are after the flesh. Or those that are unsaved. Do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit. Saved. The things of the spirit. He's talking about the difference between saved and unsaved folks. He's not talking about doing right and doing wrong. He's talking about unsaved versus saved. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Spiritually minded is to think according to salvation. Because the carnal mind is enmity or the enemy of God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed it can be. Now, the carnal mind he's talking about is not just wrong thinking. The carnal mind he's talking about is the, is the mind of the unsaved. So then, they that are unsaved cannot please God. Remember in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, why is faith necessary to please God? Because faith is necessary to be saved. He's saying the same thing. So that they that are unsaved cannot please God. In other words, you can't please God by your works if you're unsaved. There's only one way you can please God, and that's through faith in Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? Now, remember, Paul's talking about victory. He's talking about overcoming. He's saying this is what the overcoming life looks like. Now, the overcomer is the one who has the power of God on the inside of it. It's the one that has the spirit of God on the inside of it. I would uh, hesitate to say that you, uh, well, no, I'm not even going to hesitate. It's impossible to live overcoming life just by being saved and not by being filled with the Spirit. Because you're bypassing on part of the work that God has given the Holy Spirit to do in the church. 
Now, I didn't say God's mad at you if you don't get filled with the Spirit. I'm not saying you're not going to have it. You will. But you can't live the overcoming life that God intended for you to have. Because God intended for the Holy Spirit to operate in two different ways in the church. First through salvation, second through the infilling. First as a well, second as a river. But you are not in the flesh, or in other words, not unsaved, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Which is he talking about? Is he talking about salvation or is he talking about the baptism of the Holy Ghost? If the spirit of him that raised up Christ dwells in you, which ones he mean? Well, he's been talking about salvation up to this point. But was salvation ever intended by God? I know the church has done it. But has salvation ever been intended by God to be separated from the baptism of the Holy Ghost? They started at two different points in time. Salvation began in John chapter 20. The baptism of the Holy Ghost began in Acts chapter 2. But did God intend for them to be separate in the lives of the individual? Folks, the Holy Spirit is not twins. You don't get one Holy Spirit when you get saved and another Holy Spirit when you're filled. He's not twins. It's the same Spirit in different measures for different works. But it's the same Spirit. Now, how many of you do more than one thing in your life? You may work and be either a husband and a wife. Do you separate those things out? Well, we can separate them out. We can delineate those things. I can identify how I am a pastor specifically with the work that I do. But I'm not a pastor or a husband. I'm both. That's the way it works with us. We do many different things in our lives, right? And it makes up the totality of our lives. I'm a pastor. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. According to my wife, I'm a jerk sometimes. There are many different facets to me. <laughs> there are different aspects of our lives that make up the totality of our life. Right? Well, which one am I? Am I a pastor or am I a husband? I'm both. So which is it? Does the Holy Spirit do a work in salvation or does he do a work in the infilling? Both. You can separate them out to distinguish them, but they're both intended to be working. There may be one time where I'm more a pastor than I am a husband. Other times where I'm more a husband than I am a pastor. Depending on the situation, depending on the circumstance. But I never stop being both. Isn't that the way it works? It's the way it works with the Holy Ghost. So when Paul says, if the same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead, when he's talking about him dwelling in you, which one's he talking about? He's just one. Is he talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation or the work of the Holy Spirit in in the infilling? It doesn't matter because it's all the Holy Spirit. And notice the one the, the first things that he says about the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit brings righteousness. It does away with condemnation because he brings righteousness. Well, we know that's a specific function of salvation. But now we can't distinguish the specific function in verse 11. But the second thing that he says about the Holy Ghost is that he will benefit you physically. He'll quicken your mortal body. 
If the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken your mortal body. What does that mean? It can mean any number of things. If you're dependent or addicted to certain things, the power of the Holy Spirit will quicken you, make alive from the inside, from the, from the spirit, the real man on the inside will make alive your body so that you can conquer or overcome that addiction. Conversely, if it's not something that you're addicted to, but something you're being attacked with, like sickness or disease, the same spirit that dwells, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead because he dwells in you will quicken or make alive your body physically to conquer sickness and disease. See, here's the problem that I, that I see with, with uh, uh, the way most people look at it. They look at either salvation or the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and they fail to recognize that there is power. They recognize that there's power in the infilling or the baptism of the Spirit, but they fail to recognize that there's power in salvation because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Nowhere in Scripture can you find where God says, all right, now that you're saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a line down the middle of you. Some things belong to you because of salvation. Other things belong to you because of the, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But don't ever expect the Holy Spirit to cross over between those two. And that's not the way it works. You don't have compartments on the inside of you with different Holy Spirit measures on each side. You've got the Holy Spirit, who is the power of God. So when John says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, he's saying, whatever you need, he's there. When Paul goes on to say at the end of this chapter, we're more than conquerors, he's saying, whatever you need, he's there. I can't read this whole thing. Um, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How? In, in salvation or in the baptism of the Holy Ghost? It doesn't matter. Because the Holy Ghost is inside. We should have read verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Then he tells us how. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I can give you examples of people that are not filled with the Spirit who the Holy Spirit has been bearing witness with their spirits about something in their lives. But I can also give you examples where the Holy Ghost bears witness with my spirit or with others about ministering to know what to do so that the rivers will flow out. So I think, again, we're doing ourselves a disservice by trying to distinguish between these things on the inside. We need to just accept the Holy Ghost is in there to do whatever we need. Why? Because Jesus said, I'll give you another comforter. I will not leave you comfortless. Now, here's what I want you to see. Um, well, I've got to keep reading. Verse 17. And if children... Then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs, equal heirs with Christ, in other words. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Here's another bugaboo word. Yeah, you got to suffer. What suffering is he talking about? He's talking about the suffering of, of, of your spirit in conflict with your flesh. That's the suffering he's talking about. He's talking about the suffering that we have here on the earth because of the limitations of our flesh. That's the suffering that he means. He doesn't mean if you go to the cross too. Folks, we don't need you to go to the cross. Jesus went there. He's talking about the suffering, meaning the difficulty that we have with our flesh that he was describing in chapter 7. 
that he learned how to get victory over. We're suffering because of the limitations of our flesh. How many of you have sometimes woken up in the, in the morning and say, Oh, Lord, I've got a terrible day ahead of me. There's problems just right and left. Let me go to heaven now. Now, we rarely mean that when we say it, but we do say it, don't we? Well, why do we think it'd be better to go to heaven now? Because we're suffering here in the earth. We're suffering the conflict of daily life. We're suffering the conflict of the the law of sin and death that's here present in the earth. It may not control us, but it sure controls a lot of the people that we have to interact with. And man, that gets tough. He goes on in verse 19, he says, uh, well, verse 18, let's skip that. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, he's saying, what you're going through now is nothing compared to what it will be like when a certain time comes. For the earnest expectation of the creature, the creation, the earth, in other words, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now he's telling you what the suffering is about. He's saying not only are you suffering, waiting for your redeemed body, waiting for Jesus to return in the rapture so that we receive our redeemed body, so that we don't have to deal with the residue of sin and death in our flesh any longer, but the whole earth is waiting for that. That's what the earth is groaning and travailing about. Folks, you want to know what global warming is about? Is about the earnest expectation of the creation. The Bible says climate will change. The Bible says it will get more and more extreme as we go. The idea that if you stop driving your SUV it will make a difference is just stupid. For the creature, verse 20, the creature of the creation was made subject to vanity. Vanity means the law of sin and death. It means corruption. Was made subject to vanity or corruption, not willingly, but by reason of him, who's the him, Adam, who subjected it in hope. Who subjected the same in hope. Another translation, I like another translation a lot better in this. It says, who subjected it thereby, but there is hope. And that's what the, that's the, the whole earth is groaning and travailing. The earth is waiting for the time when God will be back in charge. When will that be? When the sons of God are manifested. And that's the hope that he's talking about. Because the creature or the creation itself also shall be delivered. The earth is waiting to get out from under sin too. Shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption under the glorious liberty of the children of God. Notice everything is about when the children of God are back in control. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. That's what global warming, that's what all the other stuff that's changing, that's what the signs in heavens and the earth are going to be about. It's about the creation groaning and travailing until this point in time. And that point in time changed. It were 2,000 years beyond the point in time that Paul was talking about it, and it's still continuing. It'll continue until Jesus comes. And not only they, but ourselves also. In other words, just like the earth is groaning and travailing, waiting for God to come back under control of the earth, we're groaning and travailing, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Not only they, but we also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits of the Spirit. First fruits of the Spirit. Now, what are first fruits? First fruits are the first part. Meaning, when your redeemed body comes, there'll be a greater measure or flow or operation of the Holy Spirit through your body than there is now. You can't be more full than filled 
But you can do away with, or God can do away with, and will do away with the residue of sin in your flesh. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our bodies. The word adoption means son placement. We're waiting to be placed, even with a body, in the presence of God. Just like Jesus was when he was raised from the dead. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, he's saying, we hope for this, and we know it hadn't happened yet because we haven't seen it. You can't hope for what you see, but you do hope for what you don't yet see. That's the statement he's making. That that is seen is not hope, for what a man seeth, what does he yet hope for? No point in hoping for tickets to the ball game when you've got the tickets in your hand. No point in hoping for $100 when you have the $100. But if we hope, verse 25, but if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And that's what we're doing now. We're, with, we're patiently, well, we're trying to be patient, waiting for Jesus to come back for us. Verse 26, likewise. Likewise, just like the earth is waiting, just like we're waiting, just like the earth is groaning, and just like we're groaning, we have the help, the comforter, to give us aid and comfort, assistance. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now, what infirmities is he talking about? Well, he's got to be talking about the limitations of the flesh because that's what the whole chapter's been about so far. But what limitations of the flesh specifically does he mean? Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For, in other words, here's the infirmity that he means. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Please notice he didn't say we don't know what to pray for. We do know to pray for Jesus to come back. But we don't know how to pray for these things as we ought. Why? Because of the limitations of our body. The limitations of our natural mind. The limitations of our understanding. But, how does he help us? The Spirit himself makes intercession for us. With groanings which cannot be uttered. Just like the earth groans, just like we groan, the Holy Spirit helps us to groan. Now that does not mean, The most literal translation of this phrase, groanings, means God talk. Groanings which cannot be uttered literally means God talk. Now what in the world could that be? Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, He that prayeth in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. Interesting that he calls praying or speaking in tongues praying or speaking in the Spirit. Interesting that he talks about praying with the Holy Spirit or praying in other tongues, praying divine secrets or mysteries why would they be divine secrets or mysteries because our mind doesn't understand that's our infirmity i see some things that the bible says about the glory of god being revealed before jesus comes back but i don't know how it's going to happen do you i've got some ideas but even if i'm right 100 percent on my ideas i don't have it all figured out So what is he talking about? He's talking about praying in other tongues. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what to pray for as we ought to know. But the Spirit himself helps us. 
How does he help us? He makes intercession for us. What does the word intercession mean? Intercession means joining together two parties. You're here. God's here. Your understanding is, is unconnected with God because you don't know everything like you're supposed to. Or you don't know everything that you could know because of the limitations of the flesh. So what happens? The Holy Spirit joins those two parties. How does he join those two parties? By giving you utterance in other tongues. Now let me ask you this. Since utterance in other tongues is the evidence, speaking in other tongues is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Is he talking about Holy Spirit baptism or is he talking about salvation? See, Paul's not making a distinction here. He's assuming that believers are both, are both saved and filled. Why would the Holy Spirit expect that? Because that was God's plan. It's ludicrous for somebody to say, well, I just want to be saved. I don't want to be filled with the Spirit. Why would you not want the power of God? Why would you not want the benefit of the power of God? Because people don't know. They haven't been taught. They don't understand. Who with their eyes wide open is going to say, no, I don't want the power of God in my life. I just want to go to heaven when it's over. Will you poor silly fool? And people don't know that's what they're saying because they've been taught wrong about what it is and what it's for and when it's for. But the Holy Spirit is telling Paul, here's how I'll help you. And Paul's relating to us. Likewise, the Spirit himself Maketh intercession for us, or he helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. God talks, speaking in other tongues, in other words. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Well, who searches the hearts? God does. And God knows the mind of the Spirit because he, the Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. That means the God talk, the utterance in other tongues he gives us is always according to the will of God. So when you speak or you pray in other tongues, you're always praying God's will. Well, that beats the prayers of most people I know. And most of the people that are stuck in this are stuck in their heads. Their question is, oh, but I don't, how do we know if we're praying the will of God or not? So many times the people are praying, Lord, if it be your will, because we don't know what your will is. Well, you can know this. If you're praying in other tongues, you're always praying the will of God. Always, 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 always. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit who is part of the Godhead that's giving you the utterance to speak. Now, I don't know. For me, I consider that a real benefit. Because there's a lot of things I come to the limits of my understanding about what to do and how to do it. But I know that once I start praying in the Holy Ghost, once I start praying in other tongues, I know I'm praying the will of God. I may not ever know what I'm praying, but I know I'm praying the will of God. Now, let me point this out, too. If it's a divine secret, that means the devil doesn't know what you're doing either. Which is the reason, in my opinion, that the devil fights it so strongly. Because when you pray in other tongues, he doesn't know what you're praying about. But he knows you're praying the will of God, and he knows he's in trouble. So what does he do? He convinces so much of the church world to say, well, we don't need that today. Seriously. You don't need to pray the will of God. But see, people don't know these things. People don't accept these things are true. Verse 28. Here's what I've been trying to get to all morning. Verse 28. And we know. Everybody say, we know. And we know. 
that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. This is one of the greatest out-of-context scriptures that the church world has ever used. I grew up in a denominational church who said, whatever happens, we know that it all works together for our good. If your mama dies, if your child dies, if your dog dies, we know that it always works out for our good. And that's not what Paul's saying. That's not what the Holy Ghost impressed upon Paul to say. He said, here's when things always work out for your good, when you pray in the Holy Ghost according to the will of God. Now, here's what we do know. We know that when we allow the Holy Spirit to help us, when we don't know what to pray for as we ought, when we speak or pray in other tongues, to allow the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost, to appropriate itself in prayer, to pray the perfect will of God, then you can mark it down. Things will always work out for your good. But the implication, the reverse implication is just as true. If you don't pray in other tongues about your situation, you're pretty much on your own. Now, remember what Jesus said, and I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter that will abide with you forever. How is the Holy Spirit supposed to bring us comfort? Here's one great way, maybe the greatest way, that the Holy Spirit is supposed to bring you comfort in your individual life. And that is by praying in other tongues. I'm one to read after people that are used of God in a great way. I like autobiographies. There's not a whole lot of, of them out there, but sometimes you can get good biographies of them. And if it were people that were, if the the biographies were written by people who were closely associated with the individuals, then sometimes they have eyewitness accounts or, or, you know, things that were said firsthand and and that type of thing. Here's one thing that I've found. I've found that of of the accounts, the life stories, the life accounts that I've read of people that were greatly used of God in modern times. You, You really can't find much about people other than, you know, beyond modern times. I found this. I found that people that were used in miracles... People that are used in power, the power of God, manifesting the power of God in their ministries. I've found that there is one key theme that runs through over 90% of the ones that I've read. And that is this. They credit the miracle working power of God more to time spent speaking in other tongues than any other thing. Now remember what Paul said. Paul said the Holy Ghost, here's what the work of the Holy Ghost is in you. Number one, he makes you aware that you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. No condemnation because you're righteous. I don't care how you've messed up. If you're in Christ, you're righteous. Hopefully you're messing up, caused you to learn a lesson. You don't want to mess up like that again. But nevertheless, it doesn't change the fact that you're righteous. You were righteous before you did it. You're righteous now after you have. Secondly, The Spirit of God that dwells within you, the Holy Spirit that comes through salvation and the baptism of the Holy Ghost will quicken your mortal body. He'll free you from addictions. He'll free you from habits, wrong habits, wrong wrong action in your life. He'll free you from anything that binds you up and he'll free you from sickness and disease. In other words, the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual is not just a spiritual work. It manifests in your flesh. The third thing he mentions is the leading of the Holy Ghost. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. He bears witness with your spirit. He tells you how he's going to lead you. He bears witness with your spirit, then you're a child of God. And if a child, then you're a joint heir with Christ, equal heir with Christ. In other words, if God delivered Jesus up for your salvation, 
How will he say no to anything else? Next, he says the Holy Spirit helps us because there are times where we don't know what to do. There are times where you come to the end of your knowledge, end of your understanding, the end of your rope, if you will. What do we do then? The Holy Spirit is there to help us by giving us utterance to speak in other tongues and pray divine secrets to pray the divine will and purpose and plan of God. And you can know this for a certainty. When you spend time praying in the Holy Ghost over your situation, when you come to the end of yourself, now some things you don't need to pray in the Holy Ghost about. If you're praying to receive your healing, if you're praying to receive finances, you don't need to pray in the Holy Ghost about that. The Bible says what the will of God is. But there are other things like what do we do? Where do we go? What's your plan for my life? Those are things that we don't know. Those are things you can't find a scripture for and says, John Smith, do this. Or whoever. So what do you do? You pray in the Holy Ghost. You pray in other tongues. And you can know this for a certainty. God will turn things around to work them out for your good when you do. So what does that tell you? That tells you that the Holy Ghost will give you utterance to pray about you and your situation. Even though you may not know what you're saying. Now, how does he conclude this? Notice how he concludes. Verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? Here's a statement that he makes. If literally since God before us, who can be against us? What can you know because of the work of the Holy Ghost in the believer? Since God is for you, who can be against you? Then he makes this clarification or this statement. He said, he that uh, spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, he's saying, how can you not win when God will not withhold any good thing from you? That's what he's saying. Now, folks, all of this is in context. This is in context with knowing who you are in Christ and allowing the power of the Holy Ghost, the comforter, to work for you and in you. The next statement he makes. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I, the King James is really bad on this because they, they mixed up the, the questions and the, the statements. It starts with a statement. Who shall lay, uh, if God be for us, since God be for us, who shall be against us? The second statement is, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So here's the question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Here's the next statement. Third one. It is God that justifies. So here's the question. Who's he going, who is it that is going to condemn you? Well, the answer to that is the devil will try. What keeps him from being successful? The victory that he talked about earlier in the chapter. To know that there's no condemnation. It is Christ that died. And yea rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us. Now intercession here is not talking about prayer. Intercession is a fixed position. When the Holy Spirit gives you. Makes intercession for you. By giving you utterance in the Holy Ghost. What it's saying is. The Holy Ghost is in a fixed position. Between your lack of knowledge and God's knowledge. And so he joins those two together. By giving you utterance in other tongues. Jesus is in a fixed position. At the right hand of the Father. As the eternal evidence that you've been joined together with him. That's what it's talking about. Very seldom does the Bible speak in the New Testament about intercession being prayer. Only two times as a matter of fact. Every other time it's talking about a fixed position. Jesus is in a fixed position to join you to the Father. The Holy Spirit is in a fixed position to join your lack of knowledge with the knowledge of God. What is that fixed position? In you and with you. So it's Christ that died. 
Yea, rather that it is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So here's the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If Jesus is there, he's in a fixed position. He's always there for eternity. Then who's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Now he's going to give some questions. He's going to expand on this question. He said, shall tribulation or uh, distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Any of those things big enough to separate you from the love of Christ? Well, those are the things that most people complain about going through here on the earth. Those are the things that most people are, are faced with the devil trying to say, the only reason you're in this problem is because you messed up so bad. God doesn't love you anymore because you messed up. And that's the very point Paul's making. Are these things big enough to separate you from the love of Christ? He quotes an Old Testament scripture. As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep as a slaughter. It looks like we're going to lose on every hand sometimes, doesn't it? So what are we going to say to these things? Verse 37. No, in all these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Why? Because you get the power of the Holy Ghost on the inside of you to help you no matter what situation you're in. Usually when we talk about the power of the Holy Ghost, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and talk about the gifts of the Spirit. But folks, that minimizes the power of the Holy Ghost in you as a believer. And there is no limit to the power of the Holy Ghost in you as a believer. None whatsoever. So there is two works, two separate works of the Holy Ghost. The work of the Holy Spirit in salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit to fill you like a river. And God expects you to have both. Would you bow your heads, please? Hallelujah. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the overcoming life that we have through Christ Jesus. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody looking around for just a moment. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can't point to a time in your life where you ever said, Lord Jesus, save me. Come into my heart. I receive you and the sacrifice that you made for me personally. We're going to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer that by believing in your heart and saying with your mouth, God will change your life. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you want to receive him this morning, it's a very simple thing to do. It comes just the way that I just explained. Believe what the Bible says, that Jesus died for your sins. Confess him as your Lord and God changes you from the inside out. He makes you a new person inside. You gain the power over fear. You gain the power over despair. You gain the power over guilt. So simple, yet so important. No work of your own, just a simple choice and a decision to receive. If you're here this morning and we say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm not sure if what I've done in church before ever worked. I want to know that I know that I know that I know when I leave this place. If that's your desire, I want you with heads heads bowed and eyes closed. I want you just to lift your hand right where you are. Lifting your hand just says, I want a prayer. Anyone, anywhere. All right, maybe you're here and you'd say, I did do that once, Pastor Mike, but I've gone my own way. Boy, what a mess I've made of my own life. I want to return. I want things to be like they used to be. I want to put God back in charge of my life.
If that's your desire, we want to pray for you. And I want to invite you with heads bowed and eyes closed to lift your hand right where you are. Anyone, anywhere. One final invitation. Maybe you'd say, Pastor Mike, I know I'm saved. I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But I've never been filled with the Holy Spirit like the Bible talks about. I've never received that power from on high with the evidence of speaking in other tongues like occurred in Acts chapter 2. And I want to receive that this morning. If that's your desire, heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. I want to invite you to raise your hand. We want to pray for you and God will fill you. Anyone, anywhere. All right. Praise the Lord. I trust that means we're all saved, walking in fellowship with God and filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's all stand. Let me pray over you before you go. Father, I thank you for the great Holy Spirit that dwells within us. I thank you, Father, that we not only have that well of water springing up into everlasting life, we also have those rivers that flow from us to help others. Whether we're called to a public ministry or to help our neighbor or friends, it's all the same. I thank you, Father, for the power of the Holy Ghost that resides in us to help us, to give us answers, to show us which direction to take. Thank you, Father, that you work all things to our good when we pray in the Holy Ghost. Allow the Spirit of God to give us utterance to pray your perfect will, your plan, your desires. Thank you, Father, for the great, mighty Holy Spirit that leads us, guides us, teaches us, and indwells us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.